Hello, lovely people, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views, information, and general rambling. Good to have you with us. Let's get on with the show. And it is, I'm afraid, a solo show again this week. This is entirely my fault. I haven't managed to schedule a time to continue the discussion about Lord of the Rings with Alice, and there's a couple of other discussions stroke interviews that I want to do that I just haven't organised. Entirely on me, it's been a busy few weeks. Uh, If you are listening, Alice, hopefully by the time you hear this, we will have had that conversation. If we haven't, sorry, I'm just a bit rubbish at stuff. Okay, Um, we're going to start not with science. Because a couple of people, I mean, I've mentioned this myself on the show, but a couple of people have come forward to say, Reggie, dude, whenever you say you're going to talk about science, you actually don't. You sometimes talk about space science, but it's mostly just stuff to do with space. And that's not usually actually science. It's engineering and it's other stuff. So much as I love the science jingle, we're going to be honest. And from now on, whenever we talk about space, we've got a new jingle of the segment's very, very own. Congratulations if you know where that came from. It means you're probably at least 30. Anyway, look, there is some big stuff to talk about in space, and we're going to start with a thing that I cannot believe hasn't been a bigger story in the mainstream news. I can only assume that people are all a little bit distracted by the Olympics. Because this seems to me to be massive. I want to talk about the International Space Station. Now, you will have at least heard of this thing. If you go outside at the right time on a clear night, you can see it pass over your head sometimes. It's quite impressive. And it is a truly impressive piece of engineering. It is a space station that has been in orbit since the late 90s, or bits of it have. It has been crewed solidly, permanently now, since the year 2000. So there have been human beings in space aboard this thing for 21 and a half years. And it's quite big. It's not as big as it sounds. Um, People will tell you it covers the same area as a football field. Um, Well, it does, but that's not how much room there is, because most of that space is actually solar panels that people aren't inside. But The main living quarters area thing is quite a long tube and uh, there's plenty of room in there. There's much more room in there than there was in, say, the space shuttle, which itself was regarded as quite ruby by spacecraft standards. If you look at uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, Blue Origin New Shepard spacecraft, uh, if you look at Richard Branson's Spaceship Two, if you look at SpaceX's Crew Dragon, there's more, more room in all of them than there was in, say, an Apollo or, or a Soyuz capsule. Um, it's, the Soyuz capsules, of course, are still in use, still being used at the space station. Uh, but there's still not a huge amount of room in there. The space station, plenty of room for six people to live, work and move around. It does help that there's no up or down. So you can work on the ceiling as easily as you could on the floor, if the concepts of floor and ceiling meant anything in space, which they don't. Anyway, um, It's a hugely impressive thing. It's often thought of as an American-Russian thing, but it isn't really. It's truly international. There's a lot of European input into it, and that includes Britain. We're still part of Europe as far as space is concerned. Um, There's quite a lot of Canadian input, quite a lot of Japanese input. Uh, The Swiss are quite heavily involved. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on at the ISS. It's a wonderful beacon, not just of science but also of engineering and research and international cooperation. The whole point of the International Space Station is that one nation probably couldn't have done it on their own unless they were China who were doing it. But certainly, I mean, America could have done it on its own as well, but the the political will wasn't there to spend the money. Uh, ESA could probably have done it, but again, the political will wasn't there to spend the money. And besides, it's so much better to work with other people. The International Space Station is significantly better than it would have been if it had just been 
the American station or the Russian station. It really has been a huge merging of skills and expertise. Anyway, been up there more than 20 years. It's actually getting quite old as these things go. Um, and new bits keep getting added. Um, I strongly suspect that if the International Space Station is going to be around for very much longer, what we're actually going to be doing is bolting new bits onto it, taking old bits away. And it's going to be a bit like my grandfather's axe in that eventually none of the original station will remain and everything there will have been added since. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, the, the future is is very much up in the air. Ah, see what I did there for the International Space Station. And that's not why it's in the news. It's in the news because somebody seems to have confused it with an Olympic gymnast. Basically, last Thursday, as I record this, and, I, and indeed as you listen to this, if you're listening to it on the day of release, um, the, the Russians added a new compartment, or a recently attached Russian compartment, suddenly fired its thrusters. That caused the International Space Station, the whole thing, to go into a spin. Now, initially, it was reported by NASA that it had been tipped by 45 degrees, which is quite alarming. If you'd been aboard at the time that happened, that would have been freaky as all get out. It really would, uh, and potentially dangerous. I mean, the whole point of the International Space Station is that it's not supposed to move in relation to you when you're inside it. If it starts moving, suddenly things can hit you, and that is a problem. And it turns out it was much, much, much worse than that. Um, the NASA flight director who was in charge at NASA's part of mission control, because the International Space Station is international, it has more than one mission control. There's one in Houston and there's one in Russia, Moscow, I think. Um, but the flight controller, a guy called uh, Zebulon Scoville, and I've not heard his name said out loud, so if I'm saying it wrong, I apologise, Mr. Scoville. He actually, in an interview with the New York Times, has said that the International Space Station didn't tilt by 45 degrees. It spun one and a half revolutions. That's about... 540 degrees um, before coming to a stop and then they flipped it 180 degrees further to get it back to its original orientation. Now, there is no reason to think that the astronauts aboard, there are seven of them at the moment, um, there's no reason to think that they were in danger at any point, which is good to know. But given that this wasn't a thing they were expecting to happen and if you look at the flight logs um, and the mission programs for the International Space Station, every every second of every day is carefully mapped out. You do not get surprises in space. They're too dangerous. It must have been at best disorienting and at worst utterly, utterly terrifying to be aboard the spacecraft at that time. The whole thing seems to have been down to a fairly minor mistake on the Russian side of mission control. It was a Russian capsule that fired its thrusters incorrectly. These things shouldn't happen, but they can. It's the first error of this kind I'm aware of in the 20-year history of the ISS. It's going to be a rare one. Let's hope it doesn't happen again. It's just one of those things, I guess. If you want all the gory details, you will find them in the show notes. There's a couple of articles that I've linked to from there that give the, uh, the full background on what went on. So what else is going on in space? Well, in the continued race to get billionaires into space, everyone's favourite Bond villain, Elon Musk, is stepping back into the spotlight after um, these joyrides from rivals Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. Because, uh, of course, SpaceX, Musk's company, is doing some proper innovative engineering in a way I genuinely, genuinely don't believe that Bezos and Branson's companies are. Although recent developments make me a little bit concerned. I'll explain why. 
You'll be familiar if you've been following the show with SpaceX's Starship spacecraft. Uh, it's basically a really big rocket. And thus far, it's only done uncrewed suborbital test flight, which I know you're going to say. You're going to say, but that's what you were criticising Bezos and Branson for doing. And at least they've put people on their stuff. Well, yes, but this is a genuinely new bit of kit. I mean, Musk's company is more than capable of putting people in orbit. It's done it. It's taken people to the International Space Station and brought them back, just not using this rocket. This rocket is much bigger than the Falcon 9 that um, has been used for that. And it's getting ready to do its first orbital test flight. And that's important because this is the rocket that Musk intends to use to take people to the moon initially. And he says on to Mars. I'm still sceptical about Mars. But, you know, at this point, you do not bet against SpaceX. I may not be a big fan of their boss and I may not be a big fan of some of the things they're doing. But my goodness, they're effective. So why am I worried? Well, I'm worried because unlike the previous moon rocket, the Saturn V, which was launched from Earth using five absolutely massive rocket engines, the Starship is going to be launching from Earth using 29 much, much smaller engines. They're called Raptor engines. They're the standard SpaceX rocket engine, really. And that's a worry for me because the thing about rockets, particularly rocket engines, is they are basically a controlled explosion. You are carrying an awful lot of extremely explosive fuel. And the point of the rocket engine is to channel the force that that fuel generates when it explodes in a particular direction safely. If it goes wrong, what happens is you get an undirected distribution of that explosive force, which is to say your engine blows up. And if your engine blows up, it takes all of the fuel on the rocket with it. And if that happens, it's really bad for the crew. Really bad. I mean, not as bad as you might think. Rocket explosions are actually survivable. One of the great tragedies of the Challenger disaster is that it seems now that the crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger did not die in the explosion. Uh, but they may actually have been alive when the reinforced cockpit section they were sitting in hit the water. And that's genuinely horrifying to me. But exploding rockets is bad. The reason the Russians never got people to the moon, or at least one of the reasons, because, you know, there were many, but probably the main reason why the Russians never got humans to the moon is their big launch rocket, the N1, which is actually slightly bigger than the Saturn V, was launched on an array of 30 rocket engines. That sounds awfully familiar. And the problem that they had was that it just kept blowing up. You only need one engine to go wrong. With the N1, there were 30 chances for something to go wrong with every launch. With the Saturn V, there were only five chances for something to go wrong. Now, we can talk a little bit about the relative safety of the NK-15 rocket engines that the Soviets were using on the N1 and the Raptor engines that SpaceX is using on the Starship. And I'm going to be prepared to bet that the Raptor engine is a much more stable, much more reliable, much safer bit of kit. But nevertheless, things can and will go wrong. And Musk is giving himself 29 chances for something to go wrong with the first stage, which is the most dangerous bit. It's when the greatest pressures are on the, the craft and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I, I wish them the best. I genuinely do wish them the best. I, I'm a little bit concerned. We'll see. And finally, in space, there is a new kid on the block, except there isn't because it's the kid that's been on the block since the block was built. But they are trying something a little bit new. Boeing, one of the most famous aviation companies in the world, is getting back into the taking people to space business. Obviously, Boeing was involved in, a, in various bits of Apollo in various forms, and they are part of NASA's commercial crew project. Uh, the most 
famous bit of that being SpaceX's Crew Dragon and Cargo Dragon capsules, which since the cancellation of the shuttle program have been the only way the US have had to get their people into space using their own gear. And obviously the Crew Dragon thing is a relatively recent innovation. For a long time, the US was entirely dependent on the Russian Soyuz capsules. So NASA doesn't like to put all its eggs in one basket. It doesn't want to just work with SpaceX. So it's looking for other vehicles it can use, apart from the Crew Dragon. Boeing has been looking promising. They are, after all, veterans in this field. And they have something called the uh, Starliner, which looks an awful lot like a slightly bigger Apollo command module. But there you go. If we're honest, so does the Crew Dragon. As I record this, I was hoping to be able to tell you that it had just completed its first successful uncrewed launch because it was supposed to do that on Tuesday. That's Tuesday the 3rd of August, uh, as I record this on Wednesday the 4th. Unfortunately, once again, something went wrong with the propulsion system and the launch has been postponed. Uh, maybe by the time you listen to this on Thursday the 5th or later in August, uh, maybe they'll have been that successful test already. Maybe there won't. I don't know. They've had one catastrophically unsuccessful test launch already. Uh, and honestly, when you compare Boeing to SpaceX, Boeing is starting to look a little bit amateur hour, which is surprising because essentially Boeing is the established world power in aviation. And SpaceX is owned by a bloke who makes electric cars. It's odd. It's very odd. But there you go. And that's it for space. You know, that is getting dangerously close already to being my favourite jingle. So, huge credit to Levi's ads from the mid-90s. And also Babylon Zoo, whose song, The Levi's Ad, Treated pretty unkindly, if we're honest. But anyway, onwards, onwards, we have comics news and just general geek news still to come. Don't have a jingle for that. Should really do something there. But we will get started with the geek news with some blatant self-promotion and a quick reminder that free comic book day is coming. It is supposed to be on August the 14th. That's what all the advertising I've paid for says. We've had to postpone it because of issues with shipping. Uh, we did talk about this last week. We'll talk about it next week too, because I want to make sure everybody knows. So Free Comic Book Day is now the 28th of August. That's the last Saturday in August. There will be a carefully selected range of specially published free comics available to anyone who comes to Destination Venus while we've still got some left. Offer only applies to the specially selected range of free comics, and it only applies on August 28th, and it only applies while stocks last. Okay, to be fair to everybody, I will be maintaining my normal policy, which is, no, you can't have any early. If, for any reason, you can't get in on Saturday the 28th of August, and there is a particular comic that you want, let me know and I'll see what I can do, but I make no promises. Okay, we have to be fair. The rules of Free Comic Book Day are, first come, and nothing is available before the day itself. Okay, moving on, I guess we should probably mention that lawsuit again. This is a tough one because it's hard to have very much sympathy for anyone involved in this, but this is the situation as I understand it right now. Scarlett Johansson, otherwise known as the Black Widow, is suing Disney because Disney put the movie Black Widow out to streaming services on the same day as it dropped in theatres. Johansson claims that this move has directly cost her money because part of her deal to star in the movie Black Widow was a back-end deal, which is to say she gets paid a proportion of the box office takings. Her argument is if people can sit at home on their sofas and watch the movie, then they're not going to go and see it in the theatre, which means she won't make a percentage of the money they would have paid if they had. And on the face of it, that's a good point. But Disney's counter-argument doesn't seem that bad, actually. I mean, normally I would be the first person to side with the individual against the giant corporation, but on this occasion, it's at least a little bit nuanced. Disney say, people are still going to see it in the theatre, you're still getting the money from that. 
we are honouring our contract. We said we would give you a proportion of the box office takings. We are doing that. They also say that, honestly, Scarlet, it's a little bit rich, you suing us over this. Please consider that we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Lots of people aren't able to go to theatres right now. What we're doing is almost a public service. Out of the goodness of our hearts, we're making it possible for people who can't go to the theatre to see this movie on release so that they don't get spoiled and they can enjoy it. And surely, Scarlet, you can't be objecting to that. And, you know, I think that argument is probably a little bit disingenuous. I doubt very much that the motivation for Disney putting it out on streaming is anything like as humanitarian and egalitarian as that. But just because I think that Disney is an evil corporation doesn't mean I think they're wrong. They kind of have a point. Disney also points out that, hey, Scarlet, also, first of all, problem, Sonny, you got paid $20 million up front for this film. And $20 million is a lot of money. And it is. But I do have to take issue there with Disney because, yeah, $20 million is a lot to me. It's probably a lot to you. But it's not a lot of money in Hollywood. She's carrying the whole film, don't forget. Robert Downey Jr. got paid $20 million for Endgame. And he wasn't carrying the whole film. I'll grant you, he's, you know, the core of it. But there were a lot of people doing some heavy lifting in that movie that were not Robert Downey Jr. And he got $20 million for that. So, yeah, $20 million, that seems to be the going rate for starring in a Marvel franchise now if you're the that headline star. So, you know, that's scale. That's that's what you expect for that job. We can have a discussion at another time about whether it's morally or ethically acceptable for people to be paid that kind of money. But, you know, that's where we are. That's the state of the industry right now. The fact that Johansson is getting the same upfront payment as Danny Jr., though, does say something good to me that studios are starting to pay their female stars as much as they're paying their male stars which I think is a step forward. That certainly was not the case, even pretty recently. So all things considered, my, my official reaction as a podcaster to the whole Scarlett Johansson's Sue's Disney thing is boo-hoo both of you. It's really, come on. And actually, if Disney really want to make this go away, all they have to do is extend Johansson's deal to the money they're getting paid for the streaming service downloads and I suspect that's that's all gone then, because she would have absolutely no argument. And Disney would be able to say, yeah, look, look how good we are. And everybody would win. And I can't see why anybody would not want to win. So, yeah, that's that. On to pleasanter things, shall we? Because there is genuinely quite a lot of stuff out there to talk about. Now, we all know that the best pictures are on the radio, because then you get to use your own imagination and everything looks like you want it to look. Brilliant. Fantastic. That's great. However, the radio is a terrible medium if you want to show people pictures. And that's kind of what I want you to do. So what I'm actually going to do is direct you to the show notes where the pictures can actually be seen. Just head on over to www.destinationvenus.co.uk. And if you're listening in the first week or so after the release of this edition, just click on the icon for Geeking with Destination Venus episode 15 which will be on the homepage. If you're a little bit later than that, and it's not directly accessible from the homepage, just click on the blog bit and scroll down until you find episode 15 of this show. Because DC Comics have released some new character designs for their Batman 89 comic book. This is the series that is designed to be a continuation of the Tim Burton Batman films, which obviously the first one of those came out in 1989. And they're glorious. There's a, a, a design for Robin. We didn't get a Robin in the Tim Burton movies, which I was disappointed in. There's a design for Alfred. There's a design for Commissioner Gordon. Um, and my absolute favourite, they've got a new Joker design, one that's not based on Jack Nicholson, who I never thought was a good Joker. I, I didn't think that in 1989, and I still don't. What I thought in 1989 was that Prince, who did the soundtrack, would have made a brilliant Joker. Uh, I'll try and drop a video of Batdance into the show notes and you'll see what I mean. Um, but they're basing the Joker for the comic strip on Prince. It's so obviously Prince. It really looks like Prince. They probably can't say that because there's probably rights issues. 
but it's prints and it looks awesome. So head on over to the show notes and take a look at that. Don't head over to the show notes for the images associated with this next bit of news, though, because I can't find any. It's very frustrating because I've seen them and I can only see they've been taken down. Pictures have been released of Kamala Khan's Ms. Marvel outfit for the Disney Plus show. And overall, it's pretty comics accurate. Minor change uh, in the comics. Originally, she wore kind of superhero booty type things. Uh, she's wearing trainers. In the show, which makes a huge amount of sense, to be honest. It's more comfortable apart from anything else. Of course, a teenage superhero would wear trainers, for goodness sake. Now, the thing that caught my eye in the pictures that I've seen, though, was that she seems to be wearing, in as part of the character design, some kind of gauntlety thing, which is not anything to do with the Ms. Marvel of the comics. And I'm wondering, therefore, if they're going to play around with her powers a little bit. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Ms. Marvel's powers are, or indeed who Ms. Marvel is, Ms. Marvel is Kamala Khan. She's a teenage superhero, uh, a Pakistani-American, a Muslim teenage girl uh, who lives in New Jersey and who occasionally goes to New York to fight crime. She's got a really cool costume. It's actually based on a burkini, which is a wonderful in-joke because the original Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers, who is now Captain Marvel, in her Ms. Marvel days, essentially wore a bikini. So. The new Ms. Marvel's costume is still swimwear-based, but again, much more appropriate for a teenager to be wearing out on the street. Her powers are interesting. She's an inhuman, which is too complicated to go into. Now, think of them as being a bit like mutants, but actually not. It's to do with space DNA or some such. And her powers are sort of stretchy-based. She calls it embiggening, but basically she can make herself big. I think she can make herself smaller and she can certainly sort of make her hand big to catch things or you know, stretch out her arms, that kind of thing. A bit like Mr. Fantastic, but actually cool. Because let's be honest, the Fantastic Four, not cool at all, really not. Uh, so that's Kamala Khan. I will stick some pictures of Kamala Khan in her costume in the show notes. But the picture I particularly wanted to show you with the gauntlet thing, I cannot find. If anybody can find it, let me know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk or hit me up on the twits. Um, we are destinationven1 on Twitter. So yeah, if you can find that image, let me know. I'd love to be able to share it. OK, skipping back across the road with the news now, back over to DC, who have released details of the new collections they're releasing in spring next year, spring 2022. Now, normally I wouldn't bother with this, but there are three, count them, Three fantastic collections of stuff that's not been in print for a while that I'm so ridiculously excited about. The first is uh, an omnibus of Dennis O'Neill and Denise Cowan's question series from the late 1980s. Absolutely stunning stuff. If you're unfamiliar with the question, um, this is a character that was created in the 60s by uh, Steve Ditko who also co-created Spider-Man. So, you know, if you're looking for a pedigree there, this is one. Uh, essentially, Vic's age, the question, is an investigative reporter. He's a journalist uh, in the daytime, much like Peter Parker and Clark Kent and uh, Lois Lane and others. At night, though, Sage dons a faceless mask and becomes the question. A vigilante who writes wrongs and does good stuff. Absolutely brilliant one. I, I think... Danny O'Neill's, and I'm sorry, he's called Dennis in all press releases now, and he never told me I could call him Danny, but I knew him as Danny O'Neill, and he was credited as Danny O'Neill for all of the Batman writing that he did and all of the Batman editing that he did at the time I was starting to read comics, and he'll just always be Danny to me. So apologies to the spirit of the late lamented Danny O'Neill if I'm getting his name wrong. Um, but this run defined the character for me. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Um, this massive, it's going to be a huge volume, it's going to be like a phone book, is collecting the question 1 to 27. That's pretty much the complete run. Uh, also, the question annual, the Green Arrow annual, and the Detective Comics annual, which featured a story featuring the question. Um, it's listed at $99.99. Um, I'm not quite sure what it'll retail at in the UK. We're probably looking at between 50 and 60 quid, I think. Um, but do you know what? Worth every 
Penny. Denny O'Neill, one of the finest superhero writers I've ever come across and absolutely one of the best people ever to take to a typewriter for DC. So that's coming. Very excited. Equally excited for something a little bit more recent. Uh, Gotham Central is being collected into a new edition. Gotham Central was one of the best stories ever set in Gotham City because it doesn't really feature Batman. Batman is only ever in the background of this. Gotham Central focuses on the cops, the GCPD. What's life like for a cop in Gotham City? This is um, GCPD blue. Uh, Hill Street Gotham, that kind of thing. It's got that kind of gritty feeling to it. Uh, it's by Ed Brubaker, Greg Rucker and Michael Lark um, with some other people helping out on the art. I think Stefano um, Gaudiano did some art. I think Kano did some art. Uh, it was top-notch stuff. Uh, it was 40 issues of absolutely on-point crime drama and it's being collected in one hardcover. Again, 968 pages this monster's going to be. And again, $100, so between 60 and 80 quid, I would have thought. Um, I kind of wish they'd re-release it in smaller bites so that it was more affordable uh, and actually easier to read. These big phone book anthologies are all very well, but they're genuinely hard to hold. Um, but that's coming, uh, and I'm excited for that. It's coming in April next year. And one of my favourite runs of Catwoman, is also being collected. Um, again, another colossal tome of a thing. It's going to be 1,064 pages. List price of exactly $100. Uh, so again, about 80 quid. There's actually no details on which specific issues are being collected. Uh, but it, at 1,000 plus pages, I think it's going to be the whole of um, the run of Ed Brubaker and Darwin Cook which is just hugely, hugely good news because Darwin Cook is my favourite Catwoman artist um, and Ed Brubaker, I think, probably wrote my favourite Catwoman stories. So uh, just stoked for this, actually. Uh, we'll definitely be stocking it. I can't imagine we're going to shift that many copies at 80 quid a pop, but um, it, just just go online and have a look at Darwin Cook's Catwoman art. Uh, I'll maybe stick a couple of examples in the show notes, but just look online because there's so much and it's so good. And I tell you, I'm in proper geek heaven and it's I own all of those stories in single issues. They're in my collection already. There's no way I can justify blowing that amount of money on some hardcovers, but I'm probably going to anyway because oh, they're going to look so good on the shelf. I'm properly, properly in geek heaven here. And finally, in the geeky news section, some less than pleasing news from Marvel Comics. Now, some of this is going to sound like a oh, boohoo Reggie owns a comic shop, but actually, I think my irritation with this isn't as an owner, it's as a reader. Um, I'll, I'll give you the rundown on what the problem is and why I'm annoyed by it. And it's basically the situation is this Marvel has a, a, a small collection of comics that have simply vanished. Some had been announced in 2019, but hadn't actually started yet. But a couple, and these are the ones that are really annoying me, a couple were actually on their second or third issue when the whole 2020 COVID thing happened. Now, I'm not blaming Marvel for COVID, clearly. That would be a conspiracy theory too far. And I'm not blaming Marvel particularly for the way it reacted to COVID. Basically, when lockdowns started in America, Marvel just told everyone to stop work and, you know, whatever you're doing, stop doing it. We can't guarantee you're going to get paid for it. So just give it a minute. And yeah, I understand why they did that. It was a real problem for quite a lot of the writers and artists who were working freelance for Marvel at the time because it meant, hang on a minute, I thought I had a gig for six months and suddenly I don't. So, you know, there were issues there, but I, I can sort of see where Marvel was coming from. although. I did comment at the time that given that most of their freelance workers were already working from home, it, it was a bit of an overreaction. But anyway, that's what they did. But they've been back some time now, and there are some things that have vanished without trace. For example, 
Back in 2019, they announced a comic called Excellent, which is a sort of sequel run to the only X-Men series I own every issue of, which was called Ecstatics. And it was a different thing. It was by Mike Allred and Peter Milligan, two very idiosyncratic comics creators. Uh, Ecstatics ran early 2000s, I would have guessed. And it was great. It was a really offbeat, left field, just really strange take on superheroes. And I loved it. There was, back in 2019, a sort of reunion one shot called Giant Size Ecstatics 1. And that was going to lead to a series called Excellent. That series was supposed to launch last year in 2020. We're now halfway through 2021. Still no sign. Mike Allred has said on social media that, you know, the project's still going and uh, it should be getting slotted into the schedule soon. Well, good. You know, that's fine. I don't mind books being late. I do mind books starting and not finishing. And this is the bit of news that got me particularly annoyed when I heard it. Back in early 2020, Marvel launched two miniseries. One was centred around the Spider-Man character Gwen Stacy, and the other was centred around Nebula from the Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, they both got to issue two. So people have bought Gwen Stacy issues one and two and Nebula issues one and two. And in both cases, the people who bought those comics have been waiting for issue three since March last year. Now, I don't think that's acceptable. I think as soon as you publish issue one of a limited series, ongoings are different. and Sooner or later, every ongoing will stop. But if you've got a self-contained story, a five issue miniseries, as far as I'm concerned, as soon as you've taken a reader's money for issue one, you have a contract with that reader to finish the story. If you don't, you make serialised story publishing, which has been the business model of comics forever. You make you shake that business model because why would I pick up issue one of a five issue series if I wasn't certain? I was at some point going to be able to pick up issue five. Now, it is the case with Gwen Stacy that the people who worked on the book, uh, Christos Gage and Todd Nauk were the writer and main artist. The book's finished. All the pages have been written and drawn. I presume the creators have been paid. So where's the book? Why hasn't it been finished? And if they're not going to publish three, four and five individually, they could at least put it out as a collection edition or, or even digitally, just something so that people can have their story finished. I really enjoyed issues one and two at Gwen Stacy. I thought they were great. I'd quite like to read more. Where is it? Now, in the case of Gwen Stacy, because I, I've known that the book's been finished, I've just been assuming that we're waiting for a slot in the printing schedule. But news this week about Nebula issues three to five makes me a little bit concerned. I read and enjoyed issues one and two of Nebula 2, as did many of my customers. I have several customers who still have it on their standing order list. Um, but they've decided they're not going to bother. Marvel has formally announced this week that it's not going to publish Nebula issues three to five, which, as I say, as far as I am concerned, breaks the contract between the publisher and the reader. As a retailer, I'm stuck in the middle and that's really annoying. But I feel bad. I took money off people for issues one and two. I recommended issues one and two to people who bought it and now may never get to see the end of the story they started. That's immensely frustrating. And, you know, comics may or may not be your thing, but if you're listening to this, I'm guessing you're probably a geek. Think about Firefly, okay? Firefly was a great TV show. If you haven't watched it, watch it. It finished halfway through season one. 
with so many loose ends left untied. They managed to tie up some of them in the movie Serenity, but it's still a deeply unsatisfying experience to watch the bits of Firefly we got and to know that we could have had so much more. There could have been an ending to that story and we're not going to get it now. Fox has been rightly castigated by fans for cancelling Firefly in the way it did. I would argue that what Marvel's doing here is worse because I do understand a TV show like Firefly costs a shed load of money to put out. And if it's not meeting its performance criteria, well then, yes. But comics are much cheaper to put out. And you can control how many you print. So, you know, if the book's not selling well, okay, print for your copies. But at least make some copies available. There has to be a cost-effective way for Marvel to do that, particularly now with printing technology advancing in the way that it is. So I guess what I'm saying is badly done, Marvel. Very, very badly done. But now, on to things I'm actually happy about. Yep, it's time for our Comics of the Week, and you'll be unsurprised to discover that this week there is no Marvel on this list. We're going to start with a book from Image, Lucky Devil, Issue 1, because it's an interesting read. This is a story about Stanley, and Stanley is a real everyman kind of guy. He's got a dead-end job, he's having troubles in his relationship, his wife is cheating on him, he is picked on at work, he's a loser. He's a stone-cold loser. And then he gets possessed by a demon. Now, in a lot of stories, that would be the story. The story of what Stanley does with that power while he's possessed. Well, we get about two pages of that in issue one. Because then Stanley gets rid of the demon. Successfully. is exercised. But not quite. Because... Although the demon's gone, the power still resides within Stanley. Now, as the demon points out to him, he has the power but not the will. But what if Stanley could find some other losers to be his backup? What then? And that's the story of Lucky Devil. It's about power, responsibility, revenge, and just how far you'll go to feel respected. Absolutely cracking script by uh, writer Cullen Bunn, who, honestly, a name to look out for. If his name's on the cover, the story's probably good. Uh, and some brilliant, quite spiky art uh, by artist uh, Fran Galan. I think that's how you pronounce it. Again, there's a weird accent over the second day in Galan, so I might be mispronouncing it. Sorry, if I am. Issue one is out now. It's from Dark Horse, so you will get to the end of the story. They won't do a marvel on you. And uh, I... Can't recommend it hardly enough. I really can't. It's great. So next we have a wonderful, sort of brooding, possibly horror story from Image Comics. Story by Scotty Young, who is both a writer and an artist, although he's not drawing this book. Um, probably best known for a series called I Hate Fairyland, which, again, heartily recommended. It was bonkers and it was brilliant and it was fun. This is a little different. The story follows Rope who is an artist who just needs to get a bit of space, get out of town a little bit. And so she goes out into the Midwest, rents a house, which turns out to be haunted. The whole sort of American Gothic horror vibe that this book has, very Stephen King, but it's a little whimsical. So it's probably leaning more toward Neil Gaiman, I would have said. Issue 1 is out this week, so obviously we don't know very many details, and I don't want to spill too many spoilers. Let's just say that it's not your conventional haunting, and leave it there. Scotty Young has a real talent for writing characters that make you immediately empathise them. Um, Ro is struggling to find inspiration for her art, and you can feel the frustration coming off the page. It's beautifully done with 
not too much expositional dialogue either. It's, it's, it's just really nicely put together as a story. The art is by Yush Corona, who has previously worked with Scotty Young on the series Middle West, which, again, I really enjoyed. It's, it's not a realistic style. It's not exactly cartoony. Again, it's quite spiky. And it's an interesting use of line. And most importantly, the visuals work with the script, which is something that so often goes wrong in comics. Here, it's a perfect marriage of styles. And then finally in this section, something a little bit more mainstream. As uh, the Joker presents a puzzle box. You see, the Gotham City Police Department has a bit of a problem. They've got a dead person, they've got a magic box, and they've got a cell full of the most dangerous villains in the whole of Gotham. All they've got to do now is figure out what's gone on. And fortunately, one of the suspects is quite prepared to spill the beans. Unfortunately, that suspect is the Joker. What exactly do you do when the only witness who'll talk to you is one of the most untrustworthy people on the planet? Step into the number one interrogation room at Gotham City Police Department and find out. Now, I love me a good mystery, and this is a really clever way of putting a story like this together. We've got writer Matthew Rosenberg, friend of the show. Um, I, he's not actually been on the show, but he did once um, do a promotional video for Destination Venus. So there you go. Uh, alongside the artist Jesus Marino and a gallery of up-and-coming, rising star, young gun creators, all coming together to present the reader with a proper puzzle mystery. I think what's refreshing about this is that there's no Batman. Like Gotham Central, the series I mentioned earlier, this focuses just on the Gotham City cop. No capes, no gadgets, just police work. That's something we don't see enough of in comics, to my way of thinking, and it's really nice to see it here. Rosenberg is one heck of a writer. Um, He's probably one of the best writers currently working at DC. And I don't say that lightly because there are several really good ones. So, follow the clues. See if you can figure out what happened. And I know we've had a really good chat about space already, but it is still time for a little bit of... Partly because there's some interesting news, but mostly because, let's be honest, I really, really love that jingle. And there's a lot more to science than space and astronomy and that kind of stuff. So, let's explore another geeky area of science, shall we? Because there's some paleontology news. And I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, everybody knew what my favourite dinosaur was. And uh, now it rarely gets discussed. For the record, Stegosaurus. But I also really like pterosaurs because they can fly. And there is some pterosaur news this week. First of all, just to be properly geeky about this, I want to be very clear. Pterosaurs are not dinosaurs. They did live alongside the dinosaurs. They were a kind of reptile that could fly. Uh, and they were around in the Triassic and the Cretaceous periods, so 228 million-ish to 66 million-ish years ago. And, you know, you've probably seen pictures of sort of huge flying creatures with sort of bat-like wings with sort of a skin membrane stretched over the bones. And it's long been assumed that pterosaur flight was a sort of soaring kind of affair. And it probably was with adults. But what about little baby pterosaurs? Could they fly? And how could they fly? We've seen pterosaur eggs. We know that the infant pterosaurs were not big enough to be this kind of gliding flyers that we imagine adult pterosaurs to be. So what's the deal? Well, it's funny you should ask. 
because there's been some fascinating work coming out of the University of Southampton, of all places. A guy called Darren Nash um, has worked with his colleagues to compare fossilised embryos and fossilised hatchlings um, from two species of pterosaur. Link in the show notes to the article that I, I'm basing this little report on because I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce the names of the two pterosaur species we're dealing with here. But what they did was look at infant wingspans and adult wingspans and the strength of the wing bones and what kind of load bearing capacity the, the, the bones in the wings of adults and infants had. And they focused apparently in particular on the humerus bone, um, which is, you know, the in humans, the humerus is the upper arm. So, you know, you can you can sort of imagine the bone that we're talking about here. So they focused on this particular bone because, as far as we can tell, that's the bone that pterosaurs were using uh, or putting the most stress on when they launched themselves into flight. So the strength of that bone is giving us some pretty good information about whether a pterosaur could get off the ground or not. What I found fascinating about this was that the humerus bones in the hatchlings of the pterosaurs were a great deal stronger than the average of the adult. And the wing formation was different too. Um, the wings of the hatchlings are shorter, which, you know, obviously, but I don't, I, I mean sort of proportionally shorter uh, and broader, which suggests an entirely different kind of flight. The wings of the adults suggest that soaring flight we've all seen the pictures of in the dinosaur books when we were kids. These shorter, broader wings are much more suited to kind of agile flying, uh, the, the kind of thing that you might see a, a swallow or a swift do, um, or maybe a sparrow. So, and again, that makes sense. I mean, we're dealing with something that's much smaller. It, it makes sense that it would have been perhaps spending more time in cover than an adult would. Uh, so, you know, it needs to be able to twist and turn through tree branches and that kind of thing. It seems that they probably wouldn't have been capable of flying far, but the ability to fly at all is obviously a huge advantage. It's not just a useful way to escape predators, but it's also a good way of um, catching prey. Obviously, there's a clear advantage to pterosaur hatchlings being able to fly straight out of the egg, as it were. What's interesting here is that, of course, modern birds can't do that. I couldn't think of a single modern bird that had the capacity to fly straight out of the egg when I sat down to write this segment. Um, all them looking up and researching for this segment, turns out there is exactly one kind of bird that can. Uh, and it, it might get its own section. Now I know it exists. Uh, it's called a malia or a malia. It's a bit like a chicken. Um, it lives on one island in Indonesia. And um, there are lots of snakes and lizards and predators and stuff. And the Melio's ability to fly straight away obviously keeps it safe uh, from those. And perhaps that's another reminder that although pterosaurs could fly and birds can fly, pterosaurs and birds are not that closely related. Birds are actually descended from the avian dinosaurs, not pterosaurs. So this is something that hasn't been lost exactly. It's simply only really evolved the once. So yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, links to the article uh, about this in the show notes. We'll move on. And that is pretty much it for this week. Uh, just a few bits of admin that I'd like to run past people, if that's okay with you. Look, uh, if it's not, can I fast forward the next five minutes? So, first of all, we don't do adverts on this show. I occasionally mention my shop if it's relevant, um, but we don't take paid advertising and we're not going to start. But this is a community radio station and being a geek is all about community. So what I want to start is a kind of community notice board, if you like. If you are a business and you have a geeky thing going on. Maybe you're running a geeky event. Uh, maybe you started offering a new service that might be attractive to geeks. Whatever it is, let me know. 
and uh, I will not give it a plug exactly. I will simply tell people that it's happening. Equally, if you're not a business, but you're doing maybe a, a charity thing or um, some kind of charity event or, or anything like that, again, let me know. And I will let other people know because I've lost count of the number of times I found out that something that I think I would have thought was cool had happened and I'd missed it. So anything in and around Harrogate that, you know, people in Harrogate might want to get to. And of course, there's a podcast version of this show, which goes all over the place. So if you want to go beyond Harrogate, go beyond Harrogate. That's fine. Comic conventions, um, book signings, social meetups for people with similar interests, whatever it is. I'd just like to help spread the word a little bit. So info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the email address to send anything along those lines to, or simply hit me up on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook as Destination Venus. We're on Twitter as at DestinationVen1. And we're on Instagram as Destination underscore Venus. So whatever it is, let us know. And I am going to just slide in a tiny little bit of blatant self-promotion. Since we came back from lockdown, Destination Venus has only been open Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays. As of today, as you are, if you're listening to this on the 5th of August when it goes out, we're open Thursdays too. Now, obviously, you're not hearing this until the evening and we are closed. We close at 5.30. But um, for future reference, we're now open four days a week under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema. So we'll make that the first item on our first ever community notice board. And we do have one other item for that notice board. Uh, our friends at the Geek Bar are pretty awesome and you should probably go and visit them anyway. But if you are musically inclined, there is an even more pressing reason to go down and check them out. They're looking to start a jam session on Thursday nights. So if you play an instrument or you sing a bit, give them a shout on social media. Um, just stick the geek bar into Facebook or, or just wander past. Uh, they're on Bower Road. Just wander past and uh, have a look in. Maybe get Smiler to mix your cocktail because he does it incredibly well. If you're over 18, obviously. And, you know, please drink responsibly. So that's it for the community notice board. We don't have a jingle for it yet. If anybody wants to write me a jingle, I'd love to hear it. Um, and if you have anything to add for next week, just info at destinationvenus.co.uk. You should also be advised that Harrogate Community Radio has its own What's On board. Get in touch with Harrogate Community Radio as well if you've got an event you'd like to promote. We're here to help, guys. It's all about community. And that's about it for this week. We'll be back next week. Um, possibly. Possibly, if I can get everything organised, with a little bit more chat between me and Alice about The Lord of the Rings. It'd be nice to have another voice on here again. Um, also, trying to line up some chats with uh, writers and artists who will be exhibiting at Thought Bubble in November. And uh, also a couple of chats with some of the organisers of Thought Bubble to uh, help you anticipate the brilliance of that. Oh, and actually... Oh, so glad I've just remembered. I've mentioned the Thought Bubble Art Trail before. Um, I want to remind you of that if you're an artist who has art they'd like to display or a business who would like to, to display some art for the week before Thought Bubble and the week after Thought Bubble, do please let me know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Um, I had a very productive meeting with the brilliant people at Harrogate Bid this week. Um, they're on board now. So uh, that has some rather exciting implications for um, being able to publicise this thing um, using the Harrogate um, loyalty app uh, as well. We, uh, and you should actually check out the Harrogate Lego trail, which is on right now. Um, it's just really cool, actually. Uh, sorry, that was a bit ram rambling and flustered because, I, you know, it's even in the script and I completely went over the, the paragraph that it was in. Uh, I should have talked about that before I talked about the community court board, for goodness sake. Right, so that's all good. We'll see you next week with, hopefully, as I say, not just me. Until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everyone else 
We'll see you here next week. For the next time, we go geeking.